Welcome everyone to the Exit Journey podcast, where we talk with CEOs, VCs, and others about the twists and turns of their journey towards a successful exit. I'm Rhonda Geet, host of the podcast and CEO of Straight Talk Marketing. My guest today is Victoria Libin. She is a senior legal executive with a deep understanding of the business needs of both global Fortune 500 companies and startups. Core member of the executive team and trusted board advisor who designs and executes global legal strategies that align with corporate objectives, driving revenue growth, mitigating risk, and reducing expenses. Flexible, creative, team builder, talent developer, influencer, and collaborative change agent who develops and nurtures alliances with customers, service providers, and internal stakeholders at all levels of the organization, and who also builds, scales, and adapts legal functions throughout growth stages. I would like to welcome Victoria to the podcast and also mention, which is not in your bio, that we used to work together. Um, And I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Rhonda. And you and I went through an exit together. So we did. We did indeed. Well, why don't we start by you telling me a little about you and what you've been up to recently? Sure. Um, Since we worked together at Adam and before we sold Adam to Viacom, and then we worked together for many years at Viacom as well, I joined uh, Accenture Digital where I led a global team of very senior lawyers, um, where we were basically looking at the art of what was possible with emerging technologies that are not so emerging anymore, such as artificial intelligence, um, internet of things, um, smart manufacturing, et cetera. And then I've joined a couple of startups, um, which both have recently undergone exits. So right now I'm just contemplating what to do next. You've had so many exits, everything from IPOs, M&As on both sides, transfer of ownership, um, and you look at it from legal expertise. Um, And I was wondering, what are some trends that you have seen in companies that have had a successful exit? Look, I've never seen legal be the driver. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, whether a company exits through capital markets, an IPO or whether they're bought, um, it comes down to business fundamentals. Right. Which are do you have product market fit? Have you been able to scale, you know, the company, um, you know, with healthy revenue while maintaining good margins? And I think right now, especially in the last couple of years, those financial fundamentals have come to bear even more. Um, It's no longer growth at all costs. But where legal plays a factor is while it won't kill the deal, it can make the deal go faster and more smoothly. And some of the common denominators or themes are building a company that has a culture of ethics and compliance. And again, I'm not saying that you have to comply with every possible law out there. But at some point, bringing in legal and getting an inventory of, you know, basically a risk heat map of what are the material risks 
and what are the gaps and understanding, hey, what is it going to take if we're getting close to an exit to close those gaps? Because when someone's kicking the tires, particularly if it's an M&A situation, you don't want to spoof them. And you may recall the exit that we went through um, when we sold Adam to Viacom. The fact that there were no red flags, bad skeletons in the closet meant that Viacom got really comfortable with us. You know, they knew they weren't buying a big lawsuit or a big, you know, regulatory action. Um, And that's, I think, something that is always important for entrepreneurs to have in mind. I mean, there's always a tension, you know, no sales, no product, no company. That's the biggest risk. But at some point, particularly if you're in a regulated industry or if you're, you know, dealing with products that use a lot of personal data, there is a point where you just can't ignore it and you can't just continuously move fast and break things. I I think you hit on a great point because when companies are, are starting out and they're like, we have this great idea. First step is you need to have a solid business plan. Second step, you need to get product market fit. And then a lot of companies will jump to, okay, let's go to an exit. But there's all these things along the way, having your data in line, having your cap table clean, um, making sure that everything is in alignment from a legal side. It makes M&As a little little smoother. Not that, you know, I've ever heard of an M&A that's been like, perfectly smooth and has gone without any hitches or obstacles along the way, but it does make it a little smoother and a little more helpful. So I think you hit on a good point. How, um, but I also think that some of the startups, um, at least startups that I advise may not be thinking like on the, on that legal level, you know, they're like, Oh, I don't have any lawsuits. I'm good. I don't need legal. What are some key points where you're like, oh, yep, you need to bring us in. Like uh, for for a first-time founder that may not have that expertise and that insight. So I would say, you know, especially even at a seed level, right? Like you're, you know, you've got this idea. You sense that there's a need in the marketplace. You're developing your product, right? And, and and maybe you've done some some saves or convertible notes. You haven't even done a price round. It's still really important that you incorporate correctly, that you have agreements with your founders because founders disputes are actually fairly common, that you have clean title to the intellectual property because a lot of the due diligence, right, is going to start even before an exit. The moment you do that price round, that series A, um, or, you know, anytime you bring in an institutional investor, such as, you know, typical VC firm or, you know, angels and you price, they're going to want to see that, right? There's going to be tax consequences. Did you do your 83B elections um, to avoid unnecessary taxes down the line on the value of your equity? You mentioned cap tables. It's incredible to me that people just lose track of who they've granted equity to. Do you actually have an equity plan? Um, for, you know, stock option grants um, to make sure that, you know, you're not in violation of risk. Those are things that, you know, yes, can they be fixed? Sure. 
but they're costly and you don't want to be fixing them when you're in the middle of the pressure of a transaction. I, I completely agree with that. What are some other common legal pitfalls or mistakes that founders, business owners should avoid when they're in this planning and executing of their exit strategy? I mean, I think, you know, if you don't have an in-house legal department, bring one in well in advance. Um, a lot of founders think they can't afford to have legal or that legal is a luxury. But look, even if you can't afford a full-time in-house general counsel, there's plenty of, you know, seasoned former general counsels that, you know, now act as fractional GCs, similar to a fractional CFO. Mm -hmm. And they will help you, you know, set up everything, make sure your cap tables claim that all of your, you know, previous corporate transactions from, you know, whether it was safes or series A or whatever it is uh, that, you know, that you're in good standing in the States that, you know, you're registered to do business. If you're, you know, selling across state that you've, you know, paid all your taxes and all those things. So those are the things that again, can delay a transaction and a delay can, you know, time kills all deals it at does. the end of the day. I, I think that's great advice. I do think bringing in fractional executives early on is a great way to ramp up. Uh, but as you're gaining traction and as you're preparing for an exit, do you think that there is a benefit to do that transition from a fractional CFO, fractional um, legal, fractional CMO, fractional whoever you happen to bring in because you're you're trying to be very mindful of spend. Do you think there's a time when they should convert their fractional to a full-time person to maybe make them a little more attractive as they're preparing for a, for an exit? I mean, I think it's a very context-based question. It's going to depend on the startup, the industry, the stage. Yeah, I would say most, somewhere between Series B and Series C, you really should consider building an internal in-house department. Um, start with a you know single lawyer of one department, but try to hire someone that has scaled and built legal teams because by the time you get to Series D, it may be that at that point, a capital market exit, an IPO is more likely than selling um, to another company. And you're going to need the processes in place to be able to do your securities, you know, SEC reporting quarter in, quarter out. You've had to build the corporate governance. I think corporate governance is something that startups often ignore because, you know, you're dealing with a small board. Generally, it's, you know, VC sitting on your boards with no independence and it's fairly informal. You meet every quarter for one or two hours. You go through you know, any updates from the last quarter in terms of product launches, financials, uh, you know, revenue, um, and that's about it. But rarely, you know, have I been in a quarterly board meeting 
in earlier stage startups where the VCs are basically asking for, you know, asking, I mean, if there's a major lawsuit that then, you know, that gets reported, maybe, but they're not necessarily going to be asking about, hey, what is the regulatory risk heat map look like? You know, do we have any major compliance gaps? Are we potentially in, you know, the crossfire of regulatory agencies? Are we risking reputational damage because of it? And with privacy and cybersecurity laws, I think all companies, and now, you know, especially if you're in the AI space, you better start thinking about what your compliance and your board reporting for uh, compliance is going to look like. I think you hit on a great point that early stage companies completely overlook when they're pulling together a board. Usually their board is is formed from investors and it's usually the investors that are saying, Hey, I want to be on your board. I, I think we need to get the other investors on here and the investors drive the board strategy where I often tell companies that I advise the CEO, the founder needs to take that leadership of creating a board and making sure that there's at least one independent director on the board because they can be a mediator between all the investors and the CEO and, and find a common ground for, for that direction and make sure that there is compliance and there is a governance and that they're following standards. Um, do you find that having an independent board director early on is a better strategy than waiting and, and trying to stick someone in a little later? It depends. Again, I hate to give the legal <laughs> lawyerly answer, but uh, uh, again, it's very situational, right? Um, you know, whether it's right to do it in a series A, series B, I've rarely seen it. You know, some somewhere like generally series C is when I start seeing some independence come on board. If, it's a particular industry where the company benefits from industry expertise um, or certain skill sets that independent directors would have, then I would say you might even be wise to have it in the series A, series B. But ultimately, right, it comes down to that, to skills. And I do recommend, you know, thinking about even, you know, with investor VCs is you know, that are on the board, what skills are they bringing to the table and what gaps? You know, if you're, for example, a company where you're going to have, say, manufacturing, right? Having an independent that really understands manufacturing industry and that can open doors can be really important. If you are a company where, you know, say you're an ad tech where personal data is sort of a bit of currency, then having somebody that really understand cybersecurity and the consequences of a data breach of all of that personal information that your company may be storing might be really important. So again, the skill matrix, even though it's some concept that you normally see for public companies, I think can be very useful um, when assembling a private company board. I, I agree with that. I think that's um, a, a good answer. And I know everyone hates the answer. It depends 
I say it all the time too. And, and usually say, oh, I hate this, but it depends. Um, but, you know, in this case, I think it's very accurate. Uh, so showing traction is something that everyone talks about companies needing, especially as you're ramping up and, and you're going through your different fundraising rounds. You've worked on go-to-market strategies with a lens of reducing regulatory and business risk. Can you expand on that a little more? Sure. I mean, ultimately, it's about getting sales right in the door. And sometimes when you're dealing with go-to-market strategy, you've got to think about who are you selling to? Obviously, I mean, you're, you're, you're in marketing, so you know this. Like, what, you know, what is your target customer what, based on the problems you're trying to solve? But if you're trying to sell particularly to uh, Fortune 100 companies, right? You're going to put be put through a lot more scrutiny. And if you're an unproven product, um, their procurement team is going to, you know, kick the tires. And, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was at a company where we were selling these robotics uh, arms that were combined with software, you know, the initial go-to-market strategy was that we're going to sell these big pieces of hardware up front and then charge for a subscription for the software. So I sort of raised my hand and said, hey, Who's going to sign up to, you know, write a seven-figure check for unproven products? We don't quite, you know, you know, we're still in that product market fit. And I'm like, you know, we might actually have to basically lease or do the robots as a service so that the upfront commitment is less and so that it's cap, cap, you know, capex. So that's not purely legal, but it's, you know, you once you're in-house enough and you've been on the other side supporting sales, you start realizing what the friction points are. And I think for early stage startups, you know, removing those friction points is really important. Then you start getting more into the legal sort of risk management side and trying to think about, hey, if I'm an acquirer, what's going to give me heartburn? And often when you're, you know, early on, you feel you don't have a lot of negotiating power. So you exceed to you know, providing like unlimited caps on damages. You know, it might be okay for the first, you know, five contracts that you do, but eventually if you keep doing it, whoever's acquiring you is acquiring all of those liabilities too, because they're assuming all of those sales agreements. So at some point you got to, you know, stand your ground and say, look, we're going to be a long-term partner of yours, providing you with whatever the technology or service. And if we're giving these uncapped um, indemnifications or warranties to everyone, at some point, our insurance is not going to cover it and we're going to be out of business. You know, and you wouldn't do that, if, you know, as the vendor on the other side. And you just have to have them understand. You know, you may recall I me, mean, I'm going to, again, because we work there together. This is before... Viacom acquire us, Nickelodeon wanted to license a whole bunch of our shockwave games. And I was negotiating with them on the other side. And obviously, you know, this was lucrative. They were going to pay us, you know, licensing, you know, revenue for this. And they were being very onerous in terms of their terms. And, you know, you know, they basically threw like, hey, we're the public company, you're the startup. And I just looked at them. I said, look, clearly the content is valuable and you stand to make revenue or you wouldn't be talking to us. And then they kind of backed up and, <laughs> you know, became a bit more reasonable. And, you know, we landed someplace fair. 
I, I, I think so many people, when they're putting together go-to-market strategies, they think it's just a sales or marketing thing. And it is not. It's a full company thing. And whoever's leading that needs to understand that and remember that finance is involved, product is involved, customer service is involved, and legal is involved. And sometimes that isn't as thought out, but, and especially if you are a startup and you're negotiating to get those big logos on, on your sales deck and your pitch decks, and you're like, oh, yay, they're, they're interested in us. Sometimes you feel like you're, you're the little person and you shouldn't, you know, push back, but you make a great point. They wouldn't be talking to you if they weren't going to make some money off. Yeah. Or if you weren't, filling a need that, you know, that they really have. So, you know, you, you bring up, you know, one of the roles that I see legal play in terms of supporting sales sometimes is being that um, kind of information broker or, you know, that's bringing in and making sure that product is aligned, that, you know, the delivery organism, I mean, can we support it? Like, you know, just because you signed up to provide certain, you know, support, um, or SLAs, you know, you can put it on paper, but can you actually do it? And that's where engineering sometimes has to come in or sometimes sales is, you know, the customer may be pushing for certain customization. Does engineering have the bandwidth? You brought up finance, you know, uh, sometimes certain structures might be, you know, convenient for the customer, but it can re or certain warranty language, you know, that's being demanded by the customer can really affect revenue recognition. So you need to make sure that uh, finance is also, you know, aligned. And that's where having it, you know, legal can really help work with, you know, the go-to-market organization to have a deal desk, to have sort of general templates and, the, you know, positions and then fallbacks and escalations where you might need to escalate to finance or the CEO. Yeah. And I, I think finance and legal can come in and, um, and kind of be that ally for sales and marketing that sometimes we forget we have. When you're negotiating a deal with a, a customer, an advertiser, partner, whomever it happens to be, legal and finance can can be your superheroes to come in and kind of keep everyone in line so that you don't get pushed around as much. That that is correct. I mean, look. Again, I try to think of legal, at least when I'm, you know, running or building the teams as facilitators as opposed to obstacles. Unfortunately, you know, they're, they're... I know I've worked with some executives, particularly in sales and marketing, that think that, you know, legal is the department of no or where good ideas go to die. Um, but it's things have changed a lot. I think most sophisticated uh, in-house counsels see themselves as true partners, collaborators. Look, we all want the same thing. We want the company to succeed. We all know that sales and marketing is what's bringing in revenue. And if revenue doesn't come in the door, there's no company. So in that, we're aligned. And that's another reason why, again, it, it's not, it doesn't pay to be penny-wise and dollar-foolish. Often when I see legal become the department of no, it's because someone got hired straight out of a law firm and law firm practice is a little bit different. You know, 
hardly ever, you know, do you, you know, there's practice liability, um, you know, they have multiple clients, they have to hedge more, you know, if something's not like a hundred percent, you know, by the book, you know, and it's gray, they can't just say, okay, it's gray, but go ahead. So just hire a senior seasoned lawyer that has been in house for a while that can better align the company objectives and risk tolerance with the policies that they're creating. You, you bring up some really good points that CEO and founders should be aware of in general. What other considerations should they consider when planning an exit? Timing. Um, I've been involved in exits that looked great. And then, you know, especially when you're dealing with an IPO, you've got to realize that you're going to need two years of audited financials. And they're going to want to also see the auditors are probably also going to get involved with your internal controls for, you know, surveillance, honestly, compliance. And putting in those financial controls and SOX controls and the audit may take longer than you think. So start working on that at least a year beforehand. Um, same thing, if you think your exit is going to be through to a you know, public company, think about what your major regulatory you know, com or, you know, compliance and IP risks are and start, you know, closing those gaps, clean up your cap table. Um, if you, you know, haven't followed your charter, your articles of incorporation and, you know, done transactions that require shareholder approval that you didn't obtain, realize that can be cleaned up. Um, assuming most co companies are generally in, uh, you know, incorporated in Delaware and, but it takes time to get the Delaware you know, sort of certificates refiled and get all of that kind of corporate and legal debt cleaned up. So give yourself time. It doesn't happen overnight. I, I think uh, bringing up the timing issue, you know, timing in the M&A world does not always go as planned or as you would like it, as fast as you would like it, as slow as you would like it. But I think you bring up an underlying point, which is when you're planning for an exit, you also have to consider what type of exit you want and what type of organization that if you're going for an acquisition or a merger, how, how their culture and their viewpoints align with yours. It's not just putting a sign out saying, hey, we want to be bought, come buy us. Um, it's being very strategic. Um, and what I do think you want from the exit, right? Yes. What do you want? People <laughs> that not just a bag of money. <laughs> what, what do you want? I mean, in some cases, maybe you just want the bag of money. Um, and you don't want a role or an ongoing role, and you don't care if the acquirer shuts the company down. But most of the time, founders think of their companies as you know, their child and they want that product or they want that company to survive. They've also developed deep relationships and feel some level of, you know, almost paternal care towards a lot of the employees, particularly early employees. And they want to make sure those employees are going to have a home. So think about those considerations as well. Um, you know, 
also depending on what sale, like, you know, if you truly, you know, if you found product market fit and revenue, you know, what, why is somebody going to acquire you? Are they going to acquire you because you're going to be additive to the top line? Um, are you going to be acquired because you have a technology that they don't want to develop? So it's just really, you know, purchasing the technology, in which case make sure that, you know, your chain of tile, title to the technology is really clean. Um, in other words, you've signed invention assignment agreements with all your employees, with contractors, you've protected the trade secrets, you filed, you know, for, you know, for IP when I, you know, whether it's patent copyrights when appropriate, you know, make sure those docs are in a row. And in other cases, it might just be an aqua hire, right? They're hiring the team um, because there's a skill set or capabilities that they want to build that they don't have. So if they're hiring a team. Then that's also where the cultural fit with that acquirer is going to come into place. What long-term incentives will that acquirer provide? Um, and then, you know, I'm not going to get into the technicalities of that, but, you know, most stock plans are not necessarily assumed by the acquirer. Um, so then, you know, there's other stock incentives or long, you know, earnouts or other mechanisms for retaining key talent that the acquirer know may have to put into place. Um, I, I think that's a an excellent point. Um, what legal protections and contingencies can be put in place to safeguard the interest um, that you're you're talking about? I mean, I would actually start like you know, if, especially there's a couple of very prominent examples right now between you know, Twitter and, you know, Adobe, um, where if it wasn't for some large breakup fees and the, you know, the Twitter situation, Musk was trying to take the company public, right. He was trying to buy it and take it public. And, you know, he was trying to get out of the deal and it was, it, you know, uh, lawyers representing, you know, the public Twitter company put in enough of a penalty that it became unpalatable for, uh, Elon Musk to get out. With, you know, the recent, I believe it was Figma, you know, you know, acquisition that Adobe was trying to do that, you know, didn't pan out. Um, again, there was enough of a breakup fee. So make sure you have, you know, breakup fees because, again, just the process of, you know, whether you, you know, engaging bankers, um, you know, watch out for, you know, generally speaking, when you engage a banker to shop your company around, they're going to have a clause where, you know, if, for a certain amount of time, if you sell, even if they didn't bring the sale, you're going to have to pay them, you know, a fee. So, you know, watch your agreement with the bankers as well. Engage the right bankers. Engage, you know, the right consultants overall, including, you know, um, auditors. Um, because, again, most, most acquirers are going to want to see some level of audited financials. It might not be a full PCAOB audit, but. They're going to want to know that your finances are, you know, fairly clean and they can rely on, on, on them. Hire the right law firm. Um, and actually, let me rephrase that. Hire the right lawyer, because really you're hiring the lawyer, not the law firm. Uh, a law firm may have a fantastic brand, but if you end up with somebody who hasn't done as many transactions in your industry or your type, uh, you might be paying for the brand name and not getting the quality of advice. So just make sure you really vet the lawyer. Again, that's where if you have in-house counsel, they can help you um, 
engage all of these professionals and make sure they're, you know, the right fit. As we wrap up, what are other insights that you feel founders, CEOs, uh, who are on either side of an exit of what they should be aware of? If you, I mean, we've talked a lot about sell side. Um, let's talk a little bit about the buy side. Say that you're a later stage startup, you've raised some large rounds, you're sitting on some cash and you want to deploy it. And you want to grow in organically by maybe doing some market consolidation and, and buying some companies. Due diligence is going to be key. And it's almost the inverse, right? You've got to make sure, again, what, why are you buying the target? Do they have a technology that, you know, it's going to save you time because you don't have to build it? Uh, are you buying it because you're buying their top line and, you know, the revenue is going to roll up? Then the question is, what are their margins? Like, you know, how much um, is it actually, you know, how much of it really is going to kind of help you with your EBITDA numbers or is it just purely top line? So, you know, really look at the financial due diligence. Um Look at, hey, what lawsuits are you potentially, you know, bringing on board? What kind of legal compliance that they have? Is their IP clean? If it's an aqua hire, um, what is the culture like? Are they truly going to fit in or are they going to walk out the door? Um, you may recall when we, you know, after Adam got acquired by Viacom, where, you know, we did, you know, a few, you know, smaller acquisitions that were more aqua hires. And I had concerns about the cultural fit with one of them. And I insisted on having basically like a key man clause because I felt that if the CEO or the CTO of that small company left, the ability to build that gaming engine would not happen. And as it turns out, it was, you know, the CTO could not work as part of a big company and left within like less than six months which meant that at that point, you know, the subsequent payments, because we only paid a small fraction up front, were not owed. And, you know, the product went nowhere. So that was kind of sort of key foresight at that point. So those cultural fits, especially in aqua hire situations, or if there's certain really key talent that, you know, your acquisition is valueless without them, make sure you're thinking about how you're going to address those and how you're going to structure the payments. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for joining today um, on the Exit Journey podcast. I so appreciated our discussion, and I think it gave a lot of insight in um, that on both seller and buyer side can learn from. Really appreciate it, and it's been a pleasure, and happy to talk to any of your viewers or continue the conversation on some other topic some other time. I love that. Well, for all the listeners out there, if you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast to talk about your journey for your company and the path that you've taken towards a successful exit, please contact us. The info is in the description, or you can visit straighttalk.marketing and fill out the form. Until next time, we wish you successful navigation of the potholes and pitfalls in your exit journey. Thank you. Did it. Stop.